Okay. All right. So I am so glad that you are here on the second day of the year, and I hope that you brought a Bible with you this morning. And if you would, take it and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. I hope that uh, you have a, a bulletin that you got one of those when you came in. I think me and this thing are going to fight all day today and yeah, since Greg isn't here. So I hope that you have a bulletin on the back of that. There'll be some notes that if you want to use that to uh, kind of reference our time together in the Word, then also in 2 Samuel chapter 6 as we get to God's Word together. I know that yesterday was the first day of the year, so I'm a little bit behind, but I think that regardless of where you may be at, some of people in this room set New Year's resolutions. Some people in this room say, I don't have anything to do with them. I don't care anything about New Year's resolutions. And some of you are anywhere in between. But the reality is that as we come to the end of one year, and as we look to the beginning of the next year, it is an opportunity for us to reflect. It's an opportunity for us to think. It's an opportunity for us to take stock of where we've been. It's an opportunity for us to consider where we want to go. It's just an opportunity for us to think about the things that God has done for us, the things that we want to do for God. And whether you're a person that sets resolutions or not, it's still an opportunity for us to think about what does God want us to do with the year before us. If he continues to tarry the second coming of his son, Jesus Christ, then we have another year in front of us to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we are going to do? So hopefully, hopefully you're going to join with me during this coming year and you're going to get one of those Bible reading plans on either side of the table and hopefully you're going to join with me this week in reading through the Bible, reading through the entire Bible in a year. You may say, well, I don't need to do that. I, I, it's not my style. I would just encourage you to say, I'm going to make a daily discipline out of ingesting and reading and abiding in God's Word and just say, this year, I'm going to read through the Bible. And yet when you get to places in Scripture, you're going to find stories that don't make sense. Stories that you come to and you're like, why is this here? What is going on here? And this is such a story here in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that I want us to see together because to me, not only do we think about what stories is, what Scripture is trying to tell us the story, but at the same time, we need to ask ourselves, what does God want me to do with this year I have in front of me? So my desire this morning is not to criticize is not to chide. My, my desire this morning is to encourage us and challenge us to think, what does God want us to do with this year coming up? Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 10, it's out of the Amplified Translation, but listen to what Paul said about his desire for his life. He said, for my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more Clearly. And then I may in the same way come to the power outflowing from his resurrection, which it exerts over believers. And then I may so share his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death, in the hope that if possible I may attain to the spiritual and moral resurrection that lifts me out from among the dead, even while in the body. There's a desire that even Paul, as holy and as righteous, and as well put together as Paul was, there was even a desire in Paul's life to know God more. And I was sharing this morning during the prayer time that we had before Sunday school how just this last week I have felt a, a, a certain amount of conviction just saying, where is my view of God at? Is my view of God, is my gaze of God, is my grasp of God, is my understanding of God, is my pursuit of God where it needs to be. And so as I've been grappling with that, with that this week, then I was there in this passage. And so some of this may be for the next few moments as you're just listening to the overflow 
of what God has been working on me. And maybe he's working on some of you in the same way, but some of you may just say, well, Spence, great. Glad God's doing that in your life. But listen to what 2 Samuel chapter 6. He's going to talk about the holiness of God. He's going to talk about the pursuit of God, maybe in a way that you might not see. See, here in this passage in the story, we're coming into the story of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 5, read down through verse 11, and listen to what he's saying. <clears throat> the story goes on, and it says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came out, or when they came to the threshing floor of Nakun, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And a great anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his heir, and he died there beside the ark of the Lord. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. You may come to this passage, and you may say, Spence, what in the world does this have to do with our view of God? Let me take you through a little bit of the journey of, of what God is working on me this week, and maybe, maybe you can relate to some of this as I think about my view of God, and I think about how easy it is for me to get off track, and for me to get off target, and for me to become so distracted with so many things in life that, that I stop keeping the first things first. I find myself encountering pitfalls. Now, pitfall is any kind of an unforeseen danger. It's any kind of a trap. It's something that you may trip over. It's something you may fall into and you don't even expect it. If you're B or maybe if you're Austin and you get up in the middle of the night and you start walking through the house because of the age of your children, it is very possible. It is very possible you might step on something that you're not expecting to be there. And it's very possible that you may say out or something other more colorful in the middle of the night. And it's very possible that you might stumble, fall down, have pain, whatever the case may be. Some people may say, well, that is a pitfall. A pitfall is anything by design meant to take you and I off of the course we intended to be on. You think about a minefield in the battlefield. You think about other things that we are on this life and there's pitfalls all around us. So many times in our spiritual life, we don't even realize it and we don't even recognize it. But Satan is putting these pitfalls all around us, trying to get you and I to stop pursuing after God, trying to get you and I to uh, be distracted, to not listen to God. And next thing you know, we find ourselves not pursuing after God, but pursuing after the things of man. The next thing you know, your gaze of God starts to lower. Your awe of God starts to diminish. Before you know it, you find yourself being more entertained and consumed and satisfied with the promises and the lies of this world instead of review of God. So what is it? What is it that causes these pitfalls? Well, you say, Spence, aren't we in 2 Samuel chapter 6? Yes, we are. Because here in this, in this story, here in this passage, we see some pitfalls. We see some pitfalls that David and the people had succumbed to. And I hope that as we look at these this morning, we will see that these are still pitfalls that are present and possible today in our lives now. So what are these pitfalls that we see? Well, first you'll see there in your notes, it's the pitfall of activity. It's the pitfall of activity. If you go back there to verse 5, and it says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. It's like they were having this giant 
party. Why were they having a party? They were having a party because if you go back in the text, you will come to 2 Samuel chapter 5. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, Saul has now been removed from the scene. David is anointed as king of all of the people. And then you get in the later part of 2 Samuel chapter 5, and you see where the Philistines come up. They think they got a new king. They got a new sucker, somebody they can bully around. God gave David a great victory. And so not only is he king, now he's had a great victory over the, the, the biggest foe that was on the planet. And then now he says, let's go get the ark of the Lord. Represented the presence of God represented the favor of God, represented the blessings of God, represented obedience and pursuit of God. All these things were there. And so it says up there in verse one of chapter six, David again gathered all the chosen men. So he has those fighting men that were close to him. Then he gets 30,000 people. And then they go down to the house of Abinadab and they decide they are going to get the ark of the Lord and move it back to Jerusalem. And so there you get into, into verse five and there's all of this activity that's going on, all of this excitement, all of this celebration, all of these things they're looking to to say, hey, the favor and the blessing of God is upon us. The reality is that success does not guarantee sanctification. And just because you have money in your bank account and just because you feel like the wind is at your back and just because you feel like God is answering prayers doesn't mean you're living a sanctified life. And not only that, but noise is not always worship. They're making a bunch of noise here in verse 5. It said, all the house that were celebrating for the Lord. Can you just imagine the, the decibels that were being raised and the noise and the activity and somebody sitting from afar may look at them and say, man, they are really getting after this thing of worshiping God. But all they were doing was creating noise. The last church I served at, they hadn't been to Falls Creek in 20 years. So men's retreat comes around, you know, the, the middle part of April, and I look at these men, and I said, hey, let's go to men's retreat at Falls Creek. Let's go to Rewired. And they're like, ah. Uh, and I was like, no, no, we need to go. We need to go to Rewired. And I don't know if you've ever been to this men's retreat there at Falls Creek, but their level of volume in that sanctuary is not the same level we have here. I mean, you think when I first get started and before they get me tuned in that I'm loud and I'm just like blowing the doors off of it, you ought to get down there. I mean, it is loud and it is coming from all angles. And I tell, you, and I, and I tell these men, I said, we need to get down there. We need to go to it. We need to attend to it. It's going to be a great time. And I remember going in there and had, hey, there was five or six men that we all went together. And I thought, this is a big step. They're going to Falls Creek for the first time. This is huge. This is huge. And then Matt Robertson comes out and the, the whole Met Collective starts to play. And I'm looking at these guys and these guys are like, whoa. Because the noise was so loud. Remember one of them told me at the end, I don't need to have the volume that loud to praise and worship my Savior. But how many times do we in our lives think that as long as there is a cacophony of noise and as long as the noise is loud, that must mean that we are doing something right. We can't come in and we can't sing hymns on a Sunday morning and worship the Lord. We can't come in and be satisfied with a piano and a violin and a chicken. No, not a chicken. Cajon. We, can, we can't be satisfied with just those. We have to have something more. We have to have the noise. We have to have the activity. And I wonder how many times God looks at us and goes, do you not understand? It's about the condition of the heart, not the condition of your mouth. And brothers and sisters, we can get so busy sometimes in the course of life, and we can find ourselves like David and those that they fall into this pitfall activity and they think, look at all we're doing. That must mean that we are being faithful to the Lord. And I want to remind you this morning that busyness does not 
equal, it is not godliness. Just because you were busy doesn't mean that you were godly. And you get involved in the life of the church, <clears throat> and you start to think, well, I'm there on Sunday morning, and I'm there on Sunday night, and then I'm there on Wednesday night, and I help out in this group, and I help out with this decision, and I help out with this ministry, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and all of that stuff is great, and I'm so glad you're there, and I'm so grateful for your service, but that does not guarantee your faithfulness before God. And sometimes we can lower our view of God because we're so busy in the work of the Lord that we forgot the Lord of the work. And I don't know about where you're at in your life, but it's just a matter of margin. Sometimes we don't have any time to rest. We don't have any time to take a break. We don't have any time to start to sit and ponder. We don't have any time to think about where God wants us to be. I was talking to Chad Payton just the other day, and I said, you know, I'm slowly coming around to the, real out, the reality that it's easier to speed up than to slow down. Because you find yourself in the state of life and you're going, how do I slow down? I've got this responsibility, I've got this responsibility, I've got this responsibility. How do I put something aside? Just because you have a full calendar doesn't mean that we are being faithful people. And, and there's a pitfall of activity. David and his people there in chapter 6 and verse 5, David and his people think, hey, you know what? We went down and we got the ark of the Lord. Hey, you know what? We are coming and we're doing all the actions. We're singing and have the music and we have the procession and we have the parade. And look at all these things that we're doing. And look, we must be really killing it for the kingdom of God. We must be so pleasing in the eyes of God. Until you get down to verse 6. Because as you read this passage, maybe upon the first time, you find yourself saying, what is going on? God, why did you do this? Because when you get down to chapter 6 and verse 6, it says, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah. Now, who was Uzzah? Uzzah was one of the two sons of Abinadab. Abinadab was the man who they had stored the Ark of the Covenant with for a period of time. So Uzzah was one of the sons of the man that had taken care of the Ark of the Covenant. And as this thing is going along the ground, maybe it was fell in a chug hole, maybe it was a pothole, I don't know what it was, but obviously according to the text, something happened to the cart, the, the Ark of the Lord shifted, and next thing you know, Uzzah put his hand out to catch it, to keep, to stabilize it, to keep it from falling, and slap! God killed him. I don't know about you and me, but we sit there and look at that and say, what happened? There's a second pitfall I want you to see, not just the pitfall of activity, but it's the pitfall of complacency. It's a pitfall of complacency. See, this whole passage is just dripping with information and dripping with connections that take you back into the text. And so that's why it's so important for when we read Scripture, we read Scripture in context. We don't look at it. We don't pull it out of context. We don't come to this story and say, well, I'm going to make up my own interpretation. I'm going to make up my own understanding. No, Scripture interprets Scripture. And as you read through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you come to the point where you understand what is happening here in the story. What was happening here in the story was a whole lot of bad things, a whole lot of things that God had never prescribed a whole lot of things that God didn't want to happen were coming together and you had a whole group of people that become complacent in their obedience to God. They had become complacent in their relationship with God. They had become complacent in the things that God had called them to do. So many times I think of it in the way of that familiarity leads to profanity. He may say, well, Spence, hold up a second. Profanity, that's a cuss word. Profanity is something vulgar. No, if you look it up, Profanity is something that is a reverence for God, something that is not devoted to the holy thing. So anything that is not of God 
holy before God or directed to God would be considered to be profane. Anything that is outside the holiness and the righteousness of God is profane. And when you become familiar with the things of God, the things of the church, the things of the holiness of God, you begin to take it for granted. You begin to get complacent. You begin to take the things of God flippantly. And at the heart of the text, this is what is happening here in verse 6 and verse 7. Because as it says in verse 7, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down. You may come to this point, you may say, well, why in the world would that happen? Well, this is where going back and understanding the text or the context is helpful. Because if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we're not going to go back and read it, but let me just reference it, and you can write it down. You go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and you see where the Philistines had come up and fought against the nation of Israel. This is back before the kingship of Saul. This is during the judgment, the judge, the judgeship of Samuel. And they came in and they, they fought against the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel brought out the Ark of the Covenant as a saying, hey, this is our God, fear our God. Before Samuel chapter 4, it tells you the Philistines beat the nation of Israel. They captured the Ark of the Covenant and they took it back to their country back to their dwellings, and they took the Ark of the Covenant. Well, you get to chapter 5 and chapter 6, and you find out that God, through that presence in the Ark of the Covenant, started to afflict the Philistine peoples with tumors, and they're having problems in childbearing, and all this bad stuff was happening. So finally the Philistines said, Uncle, we can't handle it anymore. We're going to give it back to them. But how do we give it back to them? Well, they devised a plan. They said, take two milk cows, take a brand new cart, put the Ark of the Covenant on the cart, let the milk cows go free, and they, if it's of God, they will wander their way back into the land of the Israelites. So that's what they did. So you get there in 1 Samuel chapter 6, and they return the cart back to the people of Israel. And they were so excited, and they were so happy because we finally got the Ark of the Covenant back. And how it was returned, it was returned by coming on a brand new cart. And then you get there in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and you realize that instead of taking it to Jerusalem, or instead of taking it to the temple, they decided they were going to store it. And they decided they were going to store it there at the house of Abinadab. I'm in chapter 7 in verse 2, or verse 1. Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And so it says that from that day, the ark was lodged there at his house, and a long time passed, some 20 years. So 20 years, give or take, before this, the Philistines had sent the Ark of the Covenant back on a cart. And now you see the people of God using the same idea of a brand new cart to transport the Ark of the Covenant. You may say, well, Spence, why is that such a big deal? The big deal is that God had told them not to do it. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 14, God says, when you craft this Ark of the Covenant, you're going to put rings on it, you're going to put poles in it, and people are going to carry the Ark of the of the covenant. Then you get to Deuteronomy chapter 10, and God says, when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant, you do not touch it. And then you get to 1 Samuel chapter 6, and he says, listen, do not put this thing on a car. I want you to carry it. So the problem is, is that the people have become complacent. God said, don't do it. The people said, well, the last example that we have is doing it, so that's how we're going to do it. And the next thing you know, not only does familiarity lead to profanity, but expectations become personal assumptions. We expect God to be happy because God should just accept what it is that he, we are doing. We expect God to be satisfied with our measly attempts of worship and our few scant moments of 
abiding with him in the morning, we read one verse in a devotional and we say, God, that's all you get. God, you need to be happy. God, why aren't you blessing me when I spend three minutes a day with you? You spend more time in the bathroom than you do with the word of God and you wonder why you're starving spiritually. We're starving spiritually because we're not abiding with the Lord. Candy said it was something that I was bringing up, abiding with the Lord. I got it from Hayden. That's not anything to do with me. Nothing I... Anything I say is not original. So I'm I'm stealing it from somebody else, but it's this idea that you're going to reflect who you abide with. You're going to be a reflection of that which you pursue. And it's not a matter of being complacency and saying, God, I am going to set down the expectations, and now I'm going to assume, God, that you have to follow after me. May I put it to you like this? Your hands follow your heart, and your heart follows your head. Your hand follows your heart and your heart follows your head. What do you mean, preacher? What I mean is that which is the the, the desires of your heart is what your hands are going to find to do. And the desires of your heart comes from the mind. It comes from the head. It comes from the things that you're pursuing, the things that you're bringing into your mind, the things that you are dwelling upon are the things that your heart is going to enjoy. And the things that your heart enjoy are the things that your hands are going to do. You want to change a culture, you got to change the heart. And how do we change the heart? We change the mind. We change the head. That is why, that is why it is that is why it is so dangerous right now when you look at our education. Because you have individuals coming in and they're rewriting the history books. They're rewriting the standards. They're rewriting what they are teaching our young children in primary and secondary school. And then we wonder why they come out and their worldview, their understanding, their logical evaluations, the way that they approach and interpret the world, their philosophical, it's all twisted. And it's all more. And it's because we are taking these impressionable minds and we are twisting them down there. We're twisting them in the head and we're wondering why their heart is so far from God. He says, be careful. Be careful of the pitfall of complacency. Uzzah was the brother of Eleazar. Eleazar was the son of Abinadab. Abinadab was the man who had the Ark of the Covenant stored in his home. He was a priest. He was a Levite. He was a follower of God. He had, uh, maybe you could make the argument, he had three sons that were sitting there. These sons knew the word of God. These sons knew what God had called them to do. And yet, they're hauling this thing on a cart that God had told them not to do. They're not carrying it as God had told them to do. They are reaching out and touching as God told them not to do. And it's any wonder why God does what he does. If you go back just a few pages, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, you will find that whenever the Philistines sent back the Ark of the Covenant, I'm sorry, I'm about over here in 1 Samuel chapter 6, when he sent back the Ark of the Covenant, they sent back the Ark of the New Deal, but they also sent these golden figurines there to try to make appeasement for the plague that God had brought upon them. In 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 19, it says, Some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the Ark of the Lord, he struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord has struck people with a great blow. Why did they do that? Because they touched the Ark of the Lord. Why does that matter? Because the holiness of God is at stake. And God said, I am going to be holy, and you do not approach me in an unholy way. You do not come at me with a lack of holiness in your heart and your life. And when someone comes to me, my holiness is so great. My righteousness is so great. I am so much of the God that I am, that when you come to me in an unworthy manner, there is only one option, and that is death. How many times do we become complacent with the things of God? 
I wake up late, and so God's just going to have to deal with half my time this morning. I'm not feeling good, so God, you get a smaller piece. Why is it always the things of God and the things of the Spirit of God always get cut first? You know, so many times in our spiritual life, we have this complacency when it comes to God. We think we come in on a Sunday morning, we stand up and we sit down and we go out and we mark the box and we say, look, look what I'm doing. I own a Bible. I go to Sunday school. I have a, I have a knowledge of God. I have claimed a profession of, of relationship with God. I have all these things in my life. And do we really come in and do we really set in all of the holiness of God? This God is so holy. This God is so other. This God is so transcendent. This God is so powerful that someone set out and touched the manifestation, the, the, the visual presence of God, set out and touched it, not because of his sin of being a murderer, not because he was an idolater, not because he was a pagan worshiper. Uzzah touched it in an unworthy manner, and because of the holiness of God, it demanded his life. And yet we, in our complacency, we speak about God. We claim to speak on behalf of God. We think we come into the throne of God. And we do it with so much flippantness that it should be a puzzlement to us that any of us are even alive. There are people on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night and they say, oh Lord, we just pray that your presence would come upon us. Do we really ask for God's presence? Because you know anywhere in the Bible, when you see the presence of God, you see the prostration of mankind. Not only do you see the mankind prostrate themselves, they fall on the floor, they don't want to do anything, they don't even have a breath. Every time you see the presence of God show up, and not just that, but when you see man take it upon himself to reach out and touch the presence of God, you see the holiness of God more than man can bear. And yet we will sit here in our trite ideas and say, oh, we want the presence of God. Do we? Do we really want the judgment of God? Do we really want the eye of God? Do we really want the ears of God? the heart of God? Do we really want the holiness of God? Or do we want more of our complacency in this world? So there's the pitfall of activity. There's the pitfall of complacency. But then you might be like David. And you might witness this here in verse 6 and verse 7 back here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And you might look at that and you may say, oh, that's not fair. <clears throat> I thought God was supposed to be a loving God. I thought God was supposed to be a God of mercy. See, that's why I don't believe in that God. That God can't be a real God. You and I start to form all of these ideas about what we think God should do. And let me warn you, there's a third pitfall that comes in here, and it's the pitfall of opinions. It's the pitfall of opinions. What do you mean opinions? Well, you look there at what David does. It says in verse 8, And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. It just means... means Break out against Uzzah. So, and then it says in verse 9, And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David's giving an insight into his attitude. His attitude was, is that's not fair for God to do that to Uzzah. And there is no way that I'm then bringing this thing into my house or into Jerusalem, because what more could God do to all of us? And I've got all of my chosen men. I've got 30,000 people plus that are sitting here, and they're all looking to me saying, oh, what are we going to do now? What do we do here? What do we do there? And David's like, you know what? I'm just going to come up with my own opinion of what I'm going to do next. And so it tells us there in the text that then David then sent the Ark of the Covenant to Obed in other words, David said, you know what? I, God told us to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. 
Uzzah dies, and all of a sudden David says, no, hold up a second. God changed his mind. You ever been around those kind of people? Well, God told me to do this, or God told us to do that. Next thing you know, something happens. No, no, God changed his mind. God wants us to do something different. Be very careful, brothers and sisters, that we do not take the opinion of ourselves and make them the word of God. And we have far too many people in this world today that are going around and they're spewing their opinions and they put a little bit of religiousness on it and they start saying, well, this is what God says. And you have too many people in this world today that don't know the difference because they don't know their Bibles. So somebody gets up on television, they have this big old stadium and all these people are there and he gets up and he says, pick up your Bible, this is my Bible, this is Blah, 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 garbage, garbage, garbage. Then he goes on and he starts giving you all this other heretical teaching out of his word. Just because he says it's God's word doesn't mean that it's God's word. We are too captivated by the opinion of men and not the holiness of God. Why? Because perception is persuasive. <clears throat> David is sitting there and he has all these people looking at him. He's all these people now, their eyes are fixed on David. You can imagine what this does to the celebration party. Can you just imagine they're playing the tambourines and they're playing the flute and they're playing the violin and they're playing the clavinova? Yes? Okay, so they're playing the clavinova and, and they're doing all these things and all of a sudden Uzzah, and we don't know how it happens, but Uzzah, it says the Lord struck Uzzah down. So you can just imagine he reached out there and, and something happens. This isn't Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of thing, but something happens, he dies. Can you just imagine the celebration and the excitement? It just stops. Then everybody's looking at David. All right, David, you're in charge of this circus. What are we going to do now? All right, David, this is your idea. What are we going to do now? All right, David, you told us to do this. What are we going to do now? And next thing you know, you find a David that is sitting there being more dictated by the perception of people instead of the voice of God. May I remind you this morning that fear is leverage says in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25, it says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Many seek the race of a ruler, but it's from the Lord that a man gets justice. The writer of Proverbs is reminding you and I that so many times in this world, we can get more fearful of man than we are fearful of God. And this fear is used as a leverage. It may be your fear of man, not wanting to be thought ill of, not wanting for people to ridicule, not wanting for people to make fun of you. It may be the fear of man saying, I've got to please them. I've got to make them happy. I, I am depending upon them for my affirmation and my self-esteem. It may be the fear of man or, or it might be the fear of God. I fear God too much to disobey in this area. I fear God too much to not be faithful to what he's calling me to. I fear God too much to not pursue with my entire life what it means to be a godly man or a godly woman and to lead my family in godliness and subjection to the Lord. I fear God too much to fall into the sways or into the habits or into the motives, the motives of this world, the actions of this world. I fear God too much to let a testimony be compromised. Just to be honest with you, this week I've been beat up, so to speak. 
Because I'm asking the question, what do I fear most? The reality is, is too many times I've been more fearful of man than I have of God. And I'm not saying that's where you're at this morning, but could it be? Could it be that you walked in this room and you're more fearful of man than you are fearful of God? Could it be that you're more fearful of the opinions of this world instead of the opinions of God? Could it be that you're coming in and Satan has you right where he is trying to leverage you, to control you, and to manipulate you, and to use you, not as a bearer of the light of the kingdom of God, but as somebody that's running around saying, oh, it is all coming in. Could it be that he is using fear to keep you from pursuing after I was with a mission trip in Mexico. We were down there in March and runs on the grocery stores had already started. There was all kinds of questions about the COVID at the very onset of it. We came back on that Friday, that Sunday, the churches, you know, where the 15 days to flatten the curve and that whole effort was there. Churches shut down, this church shut down, the church I was serving at shut down for two weeks and, and trying to navigate what that looks like. And it seemed like every day the president would get on the television and he was flanked by his medical advisors. And they would get on there and they'd give this two or three hour in-depth briefing about what was being done, what is there to be concerned about, trying to give hope, trying to give peace. And we would sit there, be riveted to say, we don't know what's happening. We don't know what's taking on. And we were gripped by fear. Fast forward a year and a half. Some of that continues. Some have just said, I'm over it, and you move on. But regardless of where you're at, there's still a certain amount of fear that is always there. Will I get it? Will it affect me? Will it, it, will it affect my loved ones? Is it this? Is it not that? There is still a certain amount of fear that was there. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, when it comes to our spiritual life, fear is leverage. So here in the text of 2 Samuel chapter 6, David's looking around and David is sitting there going, you know what, is, am, I, am I fearful of God right now? Am I going to say, you know what, we're going to do what God wants us to do? Or is here fear of man and the perception of man that is there and saying, you know what, I don't know what to do. We're just going to turn, uh, wrong idea, we're going to change the plans. God changed what he said to me. No, we're now going to take it down to Obed-Edom's house. It doesn't matter what David does here. Because the reality is, as I come to the text, I'm reminded that God defines His holiness. I do not define God's holiness. You do not define God's holiness. We do not determine what is holy in the eyes of God, what is acceptable in the eyes of God. We do not make that determination. God defines His holiness. Two different times you will find in Leviticus 11 where God looks at His people and says, I am holy. Holy. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, for you to be holy, for I am holy. Multiple times, God reminds his people, my holiness is a big deal. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to understand it. You don't even have to be bought in it to fully. But I'm just going to tell you when that time comes and we're standing before God and we're giving an account to God. And the Bible tells us that every knee bows and every one of us will give an account to our creator. His holiness is going to be a big deal. Why? Because sin is when we trample upon the holiness of God. That's what holiness is. That holiness is saying, when you sin against me, you're rebelling against my holiness. You're rebelling against my authority. You're rebelling against my sovereignty. People are in hell right now and will be for an eternity because they profaned the holiness of God. He 
When was the last time that we were overwhelmed with the holiness of God? When was the last time that we fasted? So we might have a greater understanding of the holiness of God. When was the last time that we spent extended time in prayer? Because we recognize our need. We recognize the lack. We recognize the callousness that has come into our lives and how our view of God had become lowered because of all the distractions, because of all of the things that were capturing our mind out in this world. And the next thing you know, we find ourselves not in awe of God's holiness like we should. And we say, I've got to stop everything until I get back on a path that's pursuing after God. When was the last time? Or do we come in? Just take these things for granted. It's Christmas season. You all have some traditions one way or another. I know Jenna says she doesn't have any traditions, but I think she does now. Everybody has something that they do. But you know the reality that some of you experienced long before I ever experienced is as people get older, People pass away. And next thing you know, that tradition of being at so-and-so's house or spending time with this family or that family, it goes away because those people are no longer there and those people are no longer around. And the next thing you know, you find yourselves missing that time. You're missing those days and you remember how sweet those moments were. <clears throat> I think the same thing could be said for our spiritual life. There's moments that you and I can look back to when we felt like we were on the mountaintop. Oh, we felt like we were so close to God. We felt like God was just speaking to us. We felt like every time we opened God's word, God was just speaking magn uh, magnificently and he was speaking mightily to us. And we just sat there and we dwelled with the word of God and we said, oh, this is so rich and oh, this is so sweet. And then we get to seasons in our life that we feel dry as popcorn and we feel just distant from God and we feel like we open the Bible and we don't get anything. We don't know where to start. We don't know how to get traction. We feel like everything we do is just crunch, 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 crunch. And we find ourselves going, what in the world happened? And we start to think, God, it's you says, no, it's not me. I haven't changed. I haven't moved. You pursue me, and you'll find that again. So I, as I've been thinking about this text, and I've been thinking about what it represents, and I've been thinking about the picture that we see, we see the picture of a people. We see the people that had Assume that activity was the same thing as faithfulness. We see a people that had become complacent in their worship and in their obedience and in their, in their behavior before God. We see a people that had become more concerned and driven by their opinions instead of the holiness of God. And we wonder to ourselves, why is it that we seem so distant? Why is it that the church seems to be so ineffective in the community? Why is it that we see all of these things in decline? We've never had more opportunity in the history of man to communicate and reach I submit to you, it's because we've lost the holiness of God. So how do we avoid this? All right, Spencer, you're bringing in a, a, a story here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. How do I take it today? Obviously, we don't have ox carts. Obviously, we don't have the Ark of the Lord. Obviously, none of us is named Uzzah that's going to be walking this thing around. I mean, how, how do we apply it today? Well, let me give you three principles that I think that we can pull out of this text that are relevant and applicable to our lives today. The first one is this, quiet your mind. Quiet your mind. Spence, where do you get this from? Well, Isaiah 26, 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in 
you. Oh, all the activity and all the distractions and all the things that are around us in this world and all the things that this world puts before us and said, oh, you've got to do this and oh, you've got to do this and this, it's the tyranny of the urgent. It's one of these things that everything has to be done right now and you and I are finding ourselves chasing back and forth between one place or another and the next thing you know, we find ourselves at the end of the day and we're so tired, we're so mentally tired that we end up numbing ourselves by sitting in front of the television and watching mindlessly in TV or, or scrolling through social media. We find ourselves just doing anything to cope and to numb ourselves because we're so busy from the day because we haven't quieted our mind. Spence, I may fall asleep. You might fall asleep. Okay, so you fall asleep. And then wake back up and quiet your mind again. Wake back up and quiet your mind again. We have a great problem right now facing the church and facing our society is we have a whole generation of young people that have been so reprogrammed through the screens and through the constant changing and the lights and the activity of the screens and they get in a setting like this and these young people are going, oh, I can't sit here for 20 minutes. I can't sit here for 25 minutes. I'm not used to that. I have to have the stimulation. I have to have the mind going all the time. It's not just a next generation issue. It's an adult issue. A couple weeks ago to Christmas, party for the work, for the job I do during the, my second job, <clears throat> I got this Apple Watch. Never had an Apple Watch before. Never was willing to spend the money on the Apple Watch. So I get this Apple Watch, and a couple of people have asked me, what do you think about it? Right, it's, it's a watch. I mean, it's useful. I'm just glad I didn't pay for it. Why, did, why are you glad you didn't pay for it? Well, because in my phone, my phone makes noises twice. When somebody texts, when somebody calls. It doesn't ding-doddle-doodle. It doesn't bring all these push notifications every time a cat goes missing in Oklahoma City. I mean, I don't get any notifications whatsoever. So where a phone might be, where this watch might be helpful so you can get all these notifications and ding doodle 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 I mean, just all the time, it sounds like a gumball machine at the arcade. I mean, this thing's going. I... This thing's quiet. I think I'm not the demographic they were trying to market to. We were talking about this in the men's Bible study. I said something about it, and Evan's like, oh, no way. And I was like, no, look. Not because I've got anything figured out and not because I'm better than anybody else. It's just because I know that if I spend seven hours a day on my phone, it's not healthy for my spirit. And brothers and sisters, sometimes you need to put that phone down and get your Bible out. And you may say, well, i got my Bible on my phone. And you also got text message, and you also got notifications, and you also got all that social media garbage that's running around in your mind. You need to get your Bible out and put your phone up, and you'll be amazed what it does to your spirit. Quiet your mind. Not just that, but dwell with the Almighty. I couldn't say a bye. That seems so repetitive, but dwell with the Almighty. Dwell with the Almighty. Where do you get this from, Spence? Well, think about what he says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Listen to the words of Isaiah. He says, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Not those who wait for social media, not those who wait for money, not those who wait for the perception or the opinions of the world. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He says, those who wait upon the Lord, those are the ones that are not going to be with the roosters or the buzzards or the crows. These are going to be the ones that are going to be soaring with the eagles. Why? Not because of their own ability, not because of their own merit, not because of their own goodness, because of the Lord. Because they dwell with the Almighty. Because when you get up, you spend more time on social media than you do with the Lord, and you wonder why social media has more of a control of your mind and your heart than the Lord. 
You spend more time on the television. You spend more time on the screen. You spend more time on your phone than you do with the Lord. You're not dwelling with the Almighty. And we wonder why we have so many people that are spiritually anemic, sick, and starving. Because they're not dwelling with the Almighty. He says, dwell with him. Dwell with him. Maybe if David had spent more time dwelling with the Lord, maybe David would have known. Oh, this, that, taking that ark, taking that ark back to the city like that's not, what's not, that's not what God wants us to do. <clears throat> maybe if Abinadab or Uzziah or Ahio, maybe if those had said, you know what, we remember what happened. We remember what God said back in Exodus. We remember what God said in Deuteronomy. We remember we spent time dwelling with the Almighty. We know what God wants us to do. And somebody says, oh, no, I'm telling you, God says this is okay. I just know it in my heart. No, God's word says it is not okay. Because we dwell with the Almighty. This last one, you all have been so patient, this last one. Follow Jesus. You may say, well, Spence, that's kind of simple. That's kind of trite. No, it's not. No, it's not. Think about what he says in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19. He walks up to the disciples. He walks up to some disciples, Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting the net in the sea. He walks up to these two men engaged in their daily work. This is what he says to them. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And from that, they, the Bible records that they dropped their nets. They immediately followed after Jesus. And because of that, God used them mightily to become fishers of men. You may say, well, Spence, I am following after Jesus. So let me tell you how many men or slash women, I don't want to be sexist here, how many men or women have you caught? Well, Spence, it's not my decision. That's God that produces the increase. Well, how many times have you gone fishing? How many times have you cast the net? How many times have you baited the hook? How many times have you said part of following after Jesus is evangelizing the lost? How many times have you looked at it and said, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Following Jesus does not mean that I go to church once a month. Following Jesus does not mean that I go to church once a week. Following, following Jesus is we do what Jesus did. And we're not going to follow what Jesus did until we have a fear and a holiness of God and a reverence for God to say, you know what? I'm not going to do what LeBron James is doing. I'm not going to do what this sports star is doing. I'm not going to do what Gundy is doing. I'm not going to do what this business person is doing. I'm not going to do what this deacon is doing. I'm not going to do what this preacher is doing. I'm going to do what God wants me to do because that is where God is leading me. And it's the pursuit of God, not the pursuit of man. It's the idea that's saying, my, my, my commission has been to follow after Jesus. And brothers and sisters, you and I say, well, we're following after Jesus. Then why are we doing the things that Jesus did? Why are we doing the things that Jesus called us to do? And so I look at this year, I look at this year in front of us, and I realize that we've got 363 days left. And you're like, oh, Spence, get over it. You'll, you'll just get on, you'll get past this. But just imagine, just imagine if we did it for reals. We say, God, I know one day I'm going to stand in front of you and I'm going to give an account. For yesterday, I'm going to give an account today. I'm going to give an account for the next 363 days. And God, I don't want to show up, with you, show up in front of you with excuses, justifications. I don't want to get up there and say, well, Brandon did this, so therefore I was justified in that. Or, well, you know what? I did more than Van, and so therefore I'm good. I don't want to show up with all the things that the world says should be sufficient. I want to show up. 
And I don't want to be surprised by the holiness of God. I don't want to be taken off guard by the majesty of God. I don't want to show up in heaven and someone have to point out who God is. I want to know God so intimately that no one has to say there's God because I know him because of the time I've spent with him. For my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly, and that I may in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection which it exerts over believers. And that he must share his sufferings and to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death, in the hope that, if possible, I may attain to the spiritual and morals of resurrection that lifts me out from among the dead, even while in the body. My challenge to us this year is what is it that we're going to pursue with our lives? Would you bow your heads with me?